Well, when I was 10 years old, I was home alone during fall break. My mom was a single parent. I was a latchkey kid, and my mom was at work for the day. And it was pretty common for my group of friends in the apartment complex that we lived in to get into a little bit of trouble. So one afternoon, we decided it would be a good idea to roast marshmallows in this dry, open field. You can see where this is headed, next to this levee that ran alongside our apartment complex. So we looked out, we found the perfect roasting sticks. I ran to my pantry and grabbed the marshmallows and the lighter. I guess you could say I was the instigator of the group. And for the fire, we gathered dry leaves into a big pile without much thought. Actually, no thought whatsoever. And then we proceeded to light this big pile of leaves on fire. As the embers began to grow hot, the leaves began to catch, and we thought, great, we've got it going. And so we started to pass around the the bag of marshmallows, getting our roasting sticks ready to go with no regard to what was happening on the ground. Well, as we kind of looked up, we realized that the the wind had begun to blow, and it acted like a billows on this uh, pile of inflamed leaves. And because we didn't take the time to build any kind of enclosure around the leaves, they began to scatter. Now, if you remember, I told you that the grass was dry. It was in the, the fall. This is Texas, so the grass was, had been dead since August anyway. Now, we tried to stamp out this growing fire with our feet, but it spread too quickly. So we did what any kid in this situation would do. We panicked and we ran. We got right out of there. Everyone, it was like every man for himself. We ran back to our apartments like nothing had happened. Now, fortunately for us and everyone who lived there, there was a neighbor who had been watching this growing development, and she kind of had like 911 on the ready. The, the fire department was just down the street. We heard the sirens come, and they put out the fire really quickly before there was any uh, damage done that day. I learned a really valuable lesson about fire. I got to meet the local police department. All in all, it was a good day. And one of the lessons we learned is that fire is both good and destructive, right? With proper care and attention and maturity, you can wield the power of fire. But if you don't have proper care, attention, and maturity, it can be devastating. And you know what? As a grown man today, I still love a good roasted marshmallow, the kind that takes the patience to get that, that, that warm center with that golden crisp on the outside. In my backyard now, we have a stone fireplace, and it provides a proper enclosure to start a fire. There's even some built-in seating, which just invites good community, good company together to sit around a fire, have good conversation, and roast marshmallows. See, fire needs boundaries to contain it, so that it doesn't spread. But it also needs a place where it can burn freely so that it isn't squashed. If you put too much form on a fire, too much structure, it can squash the fire. See, a good fire needs both boundaries and freedom. Now today we are continuing in our sermon series in the book of Proverbs called The Way of Wisdom. And one of the principles that we're finding out about wisdom is that wisdom understands how to navigate life so that we find this right balance of form and freedom, of structure and 
liberation. If you have all one and not the other, it's not a good life. See, just like a fire needs both, a good life needs both form and freedom. And in today's passage in Proverbs chapter five, and if you're looking at it in the book, the Bible's underneath your seat, it's on page 530. I encourage you to use those Bibles. Get used to uh, using your hands and your eyes to see the words of God so to know that we're not making them up. We have the the words on the screen, but it's also good to, to learn how to navigate our Bibles on page 530. As we look at Proverbs 5, and a little bit of six and a little bit of seven, we're gonna see that uh, good sex needs form and freedom. It needs both, just like a good fire, just like a good life, and you need the wisdom to navigate those things. See, at Seven Mile Road, our general practice is to preach through books of the Bible so that we address topics as they, they come up. So last time we, I, I was preaching, we were in Proverbs chapter four. And so the very next chapter is chapter five. And if you read it, you'll see this is, this is Solomon's um, sex ed class to his sons. He, he, like a good father, he wants to educate them on both the form and the freedom that we need to navigate sex. Our church does not want to dodge or to shy away from controversial or hard topics. So today we're going to find that Solomon has a chat with his sons about God's design for human sexuality. Our text is going to be outlined this way. First, we're going to look at God's design for sex that leads to delight. See, God is not a cosmic killjoy. He invented sex. It was his idea. And he gave it to us as a good gift to enjoy. So at the right time, with the right person, sex is delightful. Now, second, we're going to look at the distortion of sex that leads to destruction. See, there's this allure, a temptation, and a seduction to sexual immorality. I don't have to convince you of that. You know that's rampant in our culture. And see, it's not simply that um, sexual immorality is wrong. It's that it's poison and it will kill you. Foolishness is drinking poison, thinking it will have no effect on you. Wisdom understands what is poison and what's not and what to drink and what not to drink. So we'll look at the distortion of sex that leads to destruction. And finally, we're gonna look at the desire needed to live a life of discipline. One of the things we've been saying is it's not that wisdom is hard to find. It's that it's hard to pursue because it's hard to desire. We have to desire God's wisdom. Rejecting the temptation and this cultural pull towards erotic liberty and freedoms requires a strong desire to be disciplined. So we're gonna look at the design, the distortion, and the desire of God's wisdom for sex. All right, here we go. Now, before we get into Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, I want to remind you of the context of this first half of Proverbs. So if you're looking in your Bibles, Proverbs 1 through 9 is a series of lectures on wisdom from Solomon to his sons. And by God's grace, all of that wisdom that Solomon gave to his sons has been preserved for us in Scripture. So so this wisdom now becomes our wisdom as well. Now, before we get into the details of Solomon's sex ed class, we need to go back to the beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where God establishes his design for sex. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, 
We'll have the words on the screen as well. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. If you had to distill God's design for sex, it would be this. One man, one woman, for one lifetime. That's the design. Now listen, that doesn't mean that things don't go wrong. That doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes. It doesn't mean that we don't ever fail to live up to God's design. And if you have, if you've failed to live up to God's design, it doesn't mean that you've committed some unforgivable sin. There is no uh, sin you can commit that God's grace won't meet you there. So we need to say that at the outright, that there's, but we can be honest to say there's a design for human sexuality, and yet there's falling short of that design. It doesn't even mean that there aren't times where uh, there are biblical grounds for divorce. If marriage is one man for, with one woman for one lifetime, there's all kinds of ways that that can go wrong. And it doesn't mean you've committed some unforgivable sin. It doesn't mean that you've run out of grace in your life. And all of these are conversations that we need to have. And we'll look at some of those conversations today and some we'll have to have for another day. We can't say everything about this topic in in just one sermon. But what's important not to miss is that God has created and designed both marriage and sex. He invented it, he created it, he designed it. And as the creator and the designer, he gets to establish the parameters for it. He gets to tell us how it's used best, how it works best in order for us to thrive. God is not anti-sex. Remember, he invented it. He gave it to us as a gift to be enjoyed as he designed it. And when sex is used according to God's design, it brings physical delight It brings emotional connectivity, and it forms deep relational bonds. So right at the start, we need to establish the wisdom of God's design because we live at a time and in a culture that has suppressed God's wisdom and design when it comes to sex. We've exchanged the truth for a lie, and we've started to believe it to the point that if we're not careful, we will allow the culture and our society to define and determine what is good, true, and beautiful about sex. Let me say this too. Maybe that's already happened for you. Maybe when you think about the goodness and the truth and the beauty of sex, whatever that standard is for you, maybe it's not completely formed by God's word. Maybe there are cultural ideas, societal ideas, or maybe your own personal desires for what is good, true, and beautiful have crept in and started to define and determine sex for you. Maybe everything you believe to be good, true, and beautiful about sex is defined by our culture, or maybe some varying degree of that. But if you are a Christ follower, follower, if you would say, I am the Lord's and he is mine, and I want to know, love, and follow him, this is an opportunity for you not to be conformed by the patterns and definitions and desires of this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of your mind according to the word of God. Here's the truth this morning. Everybody, to a man and to a woman, everyone in here, you and me included, has a standard that defines what is good, true, and beautiful about human sexuality. There's no one in here who has a clean slate and says, I I have no ideas about what's at stake there. Everybody does. 
And whatever that standard is, it defines and determines what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what marriage is, the the very definition of marriage, what's permissible and what's impermissible, uh, impermissible when it comes to sex. The question isn't, do you have a standard? Do you have a definition? Do you have an idea about it? But the question is, what is your standard and who is defining it? Who has the authority and the right to make those definitions? We have to answer that that question because those desires and those standards don't come out of nowhere. What is informing those? And when there's conflict between what God says about human sexuality and what you believe, who wins? Who gets to determine what is right and wrong? See, if you aren't a Christian, it doesn't mean that you don't have a standard either. You have a basic operating uh, assumption about human sexuality. It just means that the Bible isn't your authority for it. It doesn't determine your standard for sexuality. So you'll either look to some other religion, the culture, social norms, or yourself. You'll just come up with your own standard. For the Christian, we believe that God is our creator and our designer, and he and he alone has the right, he has the responsibility, and he's really the only one who has the ability to define for us what is good, true, and beautiful about our sexuality and everything else for that matter. We just happen to be talking about human sexuality today. So we look to God's word to reveal God's design for human sexuality. One man, one woman, one lifetime. Anything that deviates, that that moves away from God's pattern and design goes against God's plan for us to thrive and flourish. So what is God's design for sex? Remember, it was designed and established at creation. Sex, uh, God designed sex is to be enjoyed by one man with one woman for one lifetime. And again, like I said earlier, there's all kinds of ways that we deviate from that. But we have to establish what is the standard. What is God saying that this is sex at its best? Now, in Proverbs 5, the last half of 6 and in chapter 7, Solomon begins to to teach his sons about that design. Now, we don't have time today to go through each and every one of those 66 verses uh, with much detail. But if, if, if if you were to go and read Uh, Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 and go, okay, how can I synthesize this? How can I kind of bring it all together to find the principle that ties everything that Solomon is going to say together? You could do it like this. Sex, according to God's design, leads to satisfaction and delight. Sex, according to God's design, leads to satisfaction and delight. And sex that deviates from God's design is distorted and leads to dissatisfaction and and death. Let me say that again. Sex according to God's design leads to satisfaction and delight. Sex that deviates from God's design is distorted and leads to dissatisfaction and death. Look with me at verse 15. Proverbs 5:15. Solomon says these words: "Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your well." Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself and not for strangers with you. 
What Genesis 2 and Proverbs 5 teach about, uh, they both teach that marriage is between one man and one woman. And they're saying that, that, that relationship, that marriage relationship is the fireplace where our sexuality burns safest and burns brightest. Pastor Ray Ortland says it like this, sex is like fire and the fireplace that keeps us warm outside the fireplace, it burns the house down. Proverbs 5 is saying, keep the fire in the marital fireplace and stoke that fire as hot as you can. That's what, that's God's wisdom for sex. Now in this passage, if you were to read through it and read it slowly and try to pick up everything that Solomon is dropping down, you're going to find out that there are some metaphors Solomon is using. Now they're tasteful, but they're very clear on what he's trying to talk about to encourage his sons toward a vital, life-giving sexual relationship with the wife of his youth. He tells his sons to drink water from his own cistern. See, a cistern is a well with life-giving water. And in this metaphor, the cistern refers to his wife. And if you think about the structure and the nature of a well for a minute, you can tell that this is not a G-rated metaphor. It's erotic. And if you don't understand how that metaphor is working, come find me for the Q&A. We can talk about it. But that's the point. What Solomon is saying is there is a well where you can drink deeply and find life-giving water for your sexual passions. It's the fireplace for your fire, the marriage bed. And he goes on to teach his sons about not scattering their springs and streams into the street. Again, think about the metaphor. The imagery is clear. He's saying, sons, your sexual vitality and focus should be spent on your wife, not on others. Everything that Solomon says here is pro-sex, pro-pleasure, pro-intimacy, which is why we can say sex, according to God's design, leads to satisfaction and delight. And if you aren't convinced, look with me at verse 18 and 19. This is the word of God. I'm not making this up. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Seven Mile Road, this is in the Bible. I didn't take this from some romance novel word porn. This is holy scripture from God. Everything about this passage says God designed sex for our delight. And when a husband comes together with his wife, they should drink deeply of each other and be intoxicated in their love. Now that word intoxicated is interesting, isn't it? Did you know the word intoxicated is used 11 times in the Bible? Nine of those times it's referring to alcoholic intoxication and it says that's bad. Here and in another place in the Song of Solomon, it's used in reference to a husband and wife drinking deeply of their love together. And the Bible is saying that kind of intoxication is not just good, but it's godly. It is a good thing for a man and a wife to be intoxicated together in their love. So at the right time, with the right person, sex as God has designed it leads to satisfaction and delight. But the flip side to that coin is this. When we stray from God's design, we distort sex 
And that delight turns into destruction. Look with me at verse three, Proverbs five, verse three. Solomon says, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death and her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. Remember, Solomon is talking to his boys about sexual temptations that he thinks will most likely be an issue for them. So he's not talking about all the deviations. He's not talking about all the choices. He's looking at his son and saying, for you, as I know you and as I understand you, these will probably be the temptations that you will face. See, sex, according to God's design, leads to delight. But anything that deviates from his design is a distortion. Now, if you think about that, think about what a distortion is. A distortion has enough semblance of the original thing, of the real thing, to feel like it's an adequate substitute. You you can hear the distortion and look at it and kind of see the original pattern. And that's what happens. But the further we deviate from that design, the harder it gets to be to see what that real design is. And these sexual distortions offer false promises and sure pain. Now, let me also say this. This is not just a sermon for uh, the men in the room. This is applicable to both men and women. See, Solomon, we're, we're seeing a conversation that he has with his sons, but if we broaden it and see the principle, we can see this applies to everybody. So if he were talking to his daughters, he would warn them of forbidden men. He is not saying all women are temptresses. That's not all what he's saying. What he's saying is that everyone, Men and women are tempted to pursue sexual pleasures outside of God's design. Everybody will face some kind of temptation there. So let's think about Solomon's sons. Why is he using, why is he talking about these temptations? Well, they're sons of the king, right? Which would mean that they're going to be extremely wealthy. When they walk into the marketplace, everyone knows who they are. They're prominent, they're rich, they're famous. So for them, the temptation is going to be for easy sex outside of commitment. So that could look like prostitutes. It could look like hookups. It could look like escorts. It could look like women trying to climb the social ladder, knowing if they can get to his sons, they'll gain in prominence. And Solomon says, don't be mistaken. Easy sex might seem like it's delightful, like it's honey, like it's sweet. But in the end, it is bitter wormwood. Wormwood is a plant that has a bitter taste to it. And if you consume certain parts of it, it's actually poisonous and deadly if consumed. Though her speech is smooth like oil, it's really a sharpened sword. It's false promises. The oil in their day would have been like a healing agent, a balm on a wound. But instead of bringing healing, this kind of seduction will bring the sword. It brings destruction. In chapter seven, Solomon kind of outlines, like here's what that speech might look like. He, he imagines a scenario. Look at chapter seven, verse 13. She seizes him and kisses him. With bold face, she says to him, so now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a whole bag of money with him and it'll be full moon when he comes home. 
Solomon says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him and her smooth talk compels him. What he's saying is sexual temptation will pull no punches, right? I'll seize you, I'll kiss you, and I'll say, I I want you. In this portrayal, the husband is gone on a journey. He He won't be home for a month. The couch has been covered with the finest linens, Egyptian cotton, like thousand uh, threads. It's the good stuff. Not jersey sheets, but like the stuff that's really smooth. I've perfumed it. And we can have sex all night into the morning. There's an offer on the table to drink of illicit fornication from evening until morning. And it's persuasive. It's seductive. It offers immediacy. Right now, with me, I want you. You can have me now. And she's appealing to the senses. Do you see that? It'll look good, taste good, smell good, feel good. And this is love and sex without any kind of commitment, about none of the hard stuff that comes with cultivating a relationship. No strings attached. In fact, you're in control. You can have anything you want. It's attractive and it's easy and it goes directly for your heart, right to your desires. And if you haven't already decided in your heart that you will flee from sexual immorality, if that decision hasn't already been made, when that uh, chance or situation comes, it will be incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to say no. If you are on the fence about what you will say when this temptation comes, it's already game over. You will not be able to resist. Look what he says in verse 22. At once he follows her, right? He hadn't decided in his heart. So he goes into the temptation. As an ox goes to the slaughter or a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Like an ox to slaughter, like a stag pierced with an arrow, like a bird in the snare, so will the person be who goes down this path of foolishness. If you read Proverbs 5 through 7, you'll hear Solomon outline all kinds of consequences. In fact, most of that text is just, here's all of the many ways this can go wrong for you. He talks about losing your honor and your reputation. He talks about losing time, money, and property in legal and civil battles. He even talks about getting beaten up by the cheated spouse because the, the husband does return home and he finds out what's going on. He talks about living with this deep sense of regret. He talks about the broken relationships and the broken families. There's even a hint at a physical deterioration due to sexually transmitted diseases. All right there in the Bible. You just have to turn on the news, look at the headlines, open your Twitter feed to see all of this happening and going on in our culture today. You probably have examples of people, friends, family, whatever, that are rolling through your mind. Solomon says, listen, sex according to God's design leads to delight and satisfaction. But distorted sex leads to physical, emotional, financial, relational 
ruin. And ultimately, it says it goes to the path of death. The fool thinks, I can beat the system. I can have illicit, distorted sex as much as I want, and then one day I'll, short, I'll find the shortcut back to the pathway of wisdom so that I get the best of both worlds. How many of us have said, I'll do this now, and then I'll repent and change my ways later? That is a twisted lie from the pit of hell from Satan himself. In the 17th century, Thomas Brooks, Puritan writer, wrote these words. But he who tempts you to sin upon the account that repentance is easy will before long bring you to despair and forever destroy your soul and represent repentance as the most difficult and hardest work in the world. What's he saying? When you're tempted to sin, you'll think that repentance afterward will be easy. So you fall into temptation and here's what happens. The same tempter who is saying, no, come, listen, it won't hurt you. He turns into the accuser and he begins to weigh you down with guilt and shame, bringing you to the place of despair. The tempter turns into the accuser and the tormentor and his lies don't stop there either. Our enemy would have us believe that we're far too gone to confess our sins, that there's no grace and repentance left for you. And so when we make sin our pattern, when we make sin delight, our hearts become hard and unresponsive to conviction. When we begin to believe the lies of the enemy, it will seem like repentance is the hardest work in the world. That's why Solomon says in chapter six, verse 27, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Can can you walk on hot coals and your feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Sex is like fire. In the fireplace, it keeps us warm. Outside the fireplace, it will burn your house down. If you play with fire, you will get burned. I love that Solomon was a good father to his sons and was willing to say, boys, we gotta have a hard conversation. We gotta talk about some realities in this world. And as a pastor, like a father in the life of this church, I need to say some really unpopular things right now. I need to speak to the sexual temptations that I think are likely going to be an issue for us. We live in a world today and a culture that feels entitled by right to have any expression of sexuality that we want. We want options like a buffet and we don't want anyone to tell us that anything is wrong. We have personal computers now. We have devices smartphones, there is likely a website or an app to bring any of our distorted sexual desires to fruition. So let me just be clear what I think some of those distortions facing us are. There's lust, adultery, extramarital sex, premarital sex, homosexual and lesbian sex, pornography, masturbation, strip clubs, prostitution, 
human trafficking, rape, sexual abuse, incest, bestiality, polygamy, polyamory, orgies, swinging. And there's likely some I haven't even thought of or don't know about. Any deviation from God's design is a sexual distortion. Now, I'm not saying those are all equal, that they're all the exact same, but they're all deviations from God's design and all of them will lead to destruction. God gets to decide what is good, true, and beautiful because he designed it and he knows what will lead to our flourishing. Listen again to Pastor Ray Ortland. The truth is, God gave us our sexuality both to focus our romantic joy and to unleash our romantic joy. When this very human joy is both focused and unleashed, having both form and freedom, it becomes wonderfully intensified and we thrive within both form and freedom. The boundaries that God has given for human sexuality are gifts. They're given by God so that the fires of sex don't burn our house down, so that they warm the home. God's design for sex will lead to delight. The distortion of sex will lead to destruction. Now let's look at the rest of these uh, passages to look at the desire needed to live a life of discipline. Look with me at chapter six, verse 25. Solomon says, do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Chapter seven, verse one. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Solomon begins to tell his sons that the battle to pursue the path of wisdom is in fact a battle for your heart. He says, you're either going to desire to go down the path of wisdom and pursue God's design for sex, or you will go down the path of the fool as you desire sexual distortion. It's, it's one or the other. That's one of the major themes of the book of Proverbs. There's a path that leads to life. The wise and the righteous will go down it. And there's a path that leads to death. The fool and the wicked go down that path and it ends in death. Doesn't matter the topic, every one of us will choose one of those paths. So how do we win the battle for our desires? Here are three ways to battle well. First, teach your heart and learn discipline. Teach your heart and learn discipline. The heart out of the womb does not love discipline and does not know the ways of God. It has to be taught and you have to learn it. Look at Proverbs 6, 20. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck if you have to. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Did you see what Solomon said? He said, take this truth and bind it to your heart. 
Whatever it takes, bind it to your heart. And when you do, this teaching and this truth will become a lamp to light your way and it will lead you to a disciplined life. When we teach our hearts where to aim, we begin to love the right things in the right way. We have to teach our hearts what is good, true, and beautiful so that our desires are now trained and focused and aimed at the right things. David Brooks, who's a columnist for the New York Times, in his book, The Second Mountain, writes this. We are not primarily thinking creatures. We are primarily loving and desiring creatures. We are defined by what we desire. We become what we love. And so the core question for each of us is, have we educated our emotions and our desires to love the right things in the right way? We have to educate our desires. We often think that if I feel something, it must be right. It's amazing how little we question our feelings. If what you feel is aligned with what God says is good, true, and beautiful, Congratulations, your feeling is right. But if what you feel is out of alignment with God's word, the problem isn't with God, it's with what we feel. God's word is the standard. That's why we have to regularly come to scripture to renew our minds and our hearts so that we're regularly taking in God's word, that we're regularly spending time with God so that we desire the things he desires. We have to teach our hearts and learn discipline. Number two, watch your steps and guard your heart. If you're gonna live a life of discipline, you have to watch your steps and guard your heart. Look what he says, Proverbs 5, 7 and 8. And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way Far from her, and do not go near the door of your house. Solomon's saying, sons, don't play with fire. Keep away from her. Don't even go to her door, let alone go in. Don't stand outside. We have to become vigilant people to stay on the path of righteousness. As you walk down this path, there will be all sorts of temptations trying to get you to come down these shortcuts and go down to the path of the fool. And often we are not clueless and unaware of the steps our feet are making. I think most of the time we know when we're starting to stray. We know exactly where we're going and what we're doing. We know that desire is wrong. We know that that thought is wrong. We know that that action is wrong. But instead of putting that sinful desire, that sinful thought to death, we cultivate it. We let it incubate. We let it grow. We feed it. We nourish it instead of mortifying it. One of my goals is to give you guys some Puritan words in the course of my life as one of your pastors. Mortify is one of those great Puritan words that means to put something to death. The writers would always say, you either vivify the desires of the heart that lead to Christ or you mortify the sinful desires of the flesh. John Owen, who had a profound impact on my life, wrote these words. He said, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. And here's the money line. Be killing sin 
or it will be killing you. When it comes to sin, we have the power in Christ to put it to death. We have that power. You can put your sin to death. You really can, seven mile, live a life of holiness. But what you can't do is cultivate, feed, incubate, grow up sin and expect it won't devour you. Don't incubate your sin because when it's full grown, it will eat you alive. You ever heard of these people who uh, like on the black market get these, these uh, wild exotic animals? They get like a, lo- like a, like a little baby tiger and they, 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 it's so cute. It's like, it's like a bigger kitten, right? And then you read the headline, like man in a New York apartment eaten by Bengal tiger. And you're like, yes, of course that's what happened. And he thought, I don't know what happened. Famous, like, it, it was so cute. It was so cuddly in the early days. Yes, when it was a cub, it, you looked bigger than it. But one day when the steak wasn't there, the Bengal said, well, I guess you're on the menu. That's exactly what's going to happen with your sin if you incubate and cultivate it. When it's grown, it will eat you alive. Put it to death now. Not tomorrow, not later. I'll get to it right now. Be killing sexual sin or it will be killing you. Third, remember that Christ redeems what sin distorts. Christ redeems what sin distorts. Look at me at Proverbs 5, 21 and 23. For man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Your ways, Seven Mile Road, are before the eyes of of the Lord. You can fool me. Tell my kids all the time. Like sometimes I go, look, I don't know if you're lying. Honestly, I don't know. Okay. Could go either way, 50-50 on this one. But the Lord knows. The Lord knows. And I know when we sin, it always comes back to bite us. Our ways are before the eyes of the Lord. When it comes to sexual sin, everyone can be tempted, no matter your sexual orientation no matter your gender, no matter your age, no matter your marital status. Look at me. Everyone in this room can be tempted with sexual sin. It's also likely that no one in this room has a clean track record. I know I certainly don't. I have deviated from God's design for sexual flourishing. I have brought to fruition distorted sexual desires. I have sinned and fallen short of God's design for human sexuality. And if that were the end of the story, I would be doomed to suffer the consequences of death that come on the path of foolishness and evil. Even if you or I, by some miracle, are able to avoid all of the negative consequences, the physical, the emotional, the financial, the societal, the relational devastation that comes to those who reject God's design for human sexuality. Proverbs tells us our, eye, our, our ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He doesn't miss a single step. Our sin and our iniquities will set a trap for us. And unless someone sets us free from that trap, we will die. 
But this is the gospel truth that I think every one of us needs to hear this morning. Christ redeems what sin distorts. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. Paul writes, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice that list is more than just sexual sin, but it does include sexual sin. And then he says these words, such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. He says, such were some of you. Think about your history of sin. You don't need to say them out loud. Please don't actually. But it's likely that some of those sins on that list, you would go, yep, that's on my sheet too. I make that list. It's very likely you do too. And Paul, writing to Christians, said, such were some of you. But then Christ stepped in. He washed. He cleaned. He made us holy. And most importantly, all of our unrighteousness was placed on Christ and we became righteous. How is that even possible? Because Jesus was ensnared, not for his wickedness, but for our wickedness. Jesus was held fast to the cross, not by the cords of his sin, but by the cords of our sin. Jesus didn't die for a lack of his discipline, but the lack of our discipline. Jesus was not led away by his folly, but because of ours. So no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, no matter the path that you've traveled, friends, there is hope. Paul says, such were some of you. That can be your past if Christ is in your present. You can be washed, you can be cleansed, and your sins can be forgiven because Christ redeems what sin distorts. The question isn't, have I distorted God's design? For my sexuality? The question is, have I allowed Christ to redeem what sin has distorted? And all you have to do is ask for his forgiveness and receive his grace that makes us clean. Seven Mile Road, I don't know what kind of conversations we're going to have today or tomorrow in the days ahead, but my prayer is that we would be a people who trust God's design for sex that leads to satisfaction and delight, and that by his grace, we would desire to live a life of discipline that's marked by God's wisdom for sex. Let me pray.